Hello and welcome to a very special 21st episode of Lave Radio, the podcast about the next game in the Elite franchise, Elite Dangerous. This week we celebrate that it's one year since the Kickstarter that spawned yet more Kickstarters. Joining me this week is our very own Kickstarter, author of Lave Revolution, Alan Stroud. Cheers. And coming along for the ride is Escape Velocity writer, director, editor, actor and gopher, Chris Jarvis. Hello. <laughs> I'm John Stabler. <laughs> really good, John. Liked it, yeah. I'm John Stabler, and I'll be your host this week. Um, we recently got word on the intergalactic newsfeed that Fozzer would be unavailable for this recording. Uh, I just hope he hasn't had a relapse of his space crabs. Remember, folks, always wear a condom, even in zero-G. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Who's zero-G and which... Um, which... <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a wrestler's name, doesn't it? <laughs> there will be someone who signed up to the forum with that name. <laughs> if you're listening, Commander Zero G, <laughs> get in touch. Okay, so um, before we get into it, Alan, what have you been up to? Oh dear! Um, since it seems like it seems like months since uh, we last recorded, so much has happened. Um, I, I've, I've kind of quite a lot has has happened in itself in that you know elite related and non elite related to start with. If we go with the Elite-related stuff, well, while you guys were over at um, Elite Meet, I finished the edit of my novel and sent the whole manuscript to Fantastic Books. So I'm now waiting on uh, on edits and replies from them. So that's uh, that's all done, which is, is great. And kind of left me twiddling my thumbs a bit in that, um, you know, I'm so used to writing every day on this, this, this thing or editing every day that I kind of didn't know what to do with myself for a little bit. So <laughs> Excellent, well done. I, yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, it was brutal. Uh, I then went away and um, wrote because there is a missing chapter that I'd always intended to do, which is a reward for particular backers. So I went away and wrote that, and then still had nothing to do. So then I started working on uh, on some of the the, the artwork, which uh, I've continued to work on over a period of time, and that's that's nearly final now. So poor old Michael is going to be getting quite a, a big email from me with most of my artwork files pretty soon because they're they're pretty much almost there which uh, which is good so that was the elite related stuff the non-elite related stuff some people know that my work have decided to nominate me for a for a national teaching award which is quite humbling um and quite quite strange in that uh, i didn't think that uh, that i would uh, necessarily be the person they choose to put forward but they they have put me forward uh, so i'm i'm kind of going through an application process which is a very strange process uh, That's it. not like the academic equivalent of the Razzies or anything like that. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not at the other end of it, so I don't know whether you know what kind of acceptance speech you have to give, or uh, or how how bad the trophy looks. But uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, it is quite quite a big thing, and um, yeah, you know, it's it's quite a weird experience to have people. I mean, it's a weird experience anyway that when people because uh, I'm not not really very good at um, at taking compliments. Uh, it is a very humbling experience when people decide that you know that you're good at something and and uh, and sort of tell you so. Um, so that was very odd. Then I got approached by the last couple of days. I've been approached by Routledge to do some writing for them, which is pretty amazing too. If anybody knows Routledge, are the educational book publishers. Uh, it's it's only a small thing. It's just a review of a particular text, but um, you know, all very nice and all very uh, all very fun. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's probably about it. That's you know, that's all the major stuff that's going on at the moment. So, so yeah, cool. Chris, what have you been up to? Yeah, since the last podcast, obviously I've had um, a certain amount of catching up to do with uh, my short story for the uh, Tales from the Frontier 
um, collection of short stories. And I have managed to complete my first draft and put that online. It was a bit rough, but it seems to be going down quite well. And I've got, it's, it's one of those annoying things that having written it, kind of as soon as I've written it and put it out there for feedback, I sort of, I start thinking, oh, I could change this and I could change that. So uh, this is one of the disadvantages of, of me having a slightly short process for it, um, is that in, in my writing, I normally like to write something, put it away for a bit, and then come back to it and make sort of changes. So with this, I'm, I'm kind of, I haven't quite got the luxury of working the way that I usually like to work. But uh, no, it's, um, you know, it's, it's out there and um, it's definitely a, a good starting point for me to, to, to press on with. Well, although Foz is not here, I can kind of speak for him in that both he and I were at uh, Elite Meet last weekend, thanks to uh, people who helped out there, especially Alien and Darren Gray, who helped organise it. And hello to everybody who's there. Saying that, I, I do realise that I was a little bit ill, so I went to bed early and I probably didn't get a chance to meet many people. But it was a great event. There was all sorts going on there. I, and I had to go on an Oculus Rift, which was uh, surprisingly good, actually. Um, so I, I do recommend people have a go if they can get hold of one. We, we do have one burning question, John. You know, okay. We are desperate to know, aren't we, Chris? That because um, obviously it is a very important thing to the entire forum. Did Graham Reed fall asleep again? I can answer this question because I saw him at breakfast the next day, and and the answer was no. There was no buckaroo in the evening, oh. so <laughs> so you didn't miss anything <laughs> as far as that's concerned. Um, in fact, I think he came prepared with matchsticks ready <laughs> to keep his eyes open so it wouldn't happen got again. To, got to two in the morning and he took a load of Pro Plus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and was, and was first man down for breakfast. And we know he was first man down for breakfast because he posted that on Sunday morning on the forums. <laughs> oh, that's strange because I thought I was the first one. Oh, ah, okay. He was he was posting on the forums. Where is everybody? We said nine o'clock for breakfast. So, yeah, no, I thought that was, I thought it was really funny because it obviously, you know, determined not to be the buckaroo victim this this time round. Well, no, I think it was because I was ill um, and obviously I didn't have a hangover or anything and I got to bed at a reasonable time. Um, you know, I was up at half seven and uh, having breakfast. So, um, But he was the, the normal person who was up first, I guess, then. Fair enough. So I, I guess we need to uh, move on to things, move on to the, the business of the day. Obviously, apologies for people that were hoping Fozzo would be hosting. You've got me instead. We've mentioned Elite Meat. Uh, there's a Conclave episode out, which obviously was recorded live at Elite Meat, which captured a lot of people's opinions on uh, especially the Kickstarter anniversary and the, you know the future of the community. Was this something that you wanted to say about this, Alan, at all? Well, I, I thought it was it was great. It was great to hear from everybody and uh, uh, and everything else, and you know the reflections on uh, the way in which the last year has gone, and how you know everyone's stories of how they got to the Kickstarter and everything else is always lovely to you know to sort of hear because we've all got you know a little story about how we found it, what we chose to pledge, and this, that, and the other. But I think kind of you know our focus as lay radio now really has to be on looking at reflecting back a bit but from the view of where new people are going to come in what should they be thinking about with regards to what this game is about so you know over this year what what's come out how have we developed things and and how have frontier developed things you know what sort of things can they expect so i was kind of going to put the question to you guys tonight and say what do you what do you think over this year what's emerged as the unique selling points of elite dangerous and if we're you know we were going to talk about them Let's talk about them as if we're talking to people who've just come to, you know, to find out about this on the forum. 
you frame it in an interesting way. And over the last couple of days, it's kind of come to me, you know, after Elite Meet and, and some of the other things I've been doing. The, for me, the, the community is the big thing. I think originally with the DDF and with everybody on the forums, everybody was very interested. I don't want to use the word selfish, but they were very concerned, obviously, that, that the game would be, you know, what it was to them. Mm. You know, so there was a, a lot of talk of features and what should be in and what should be out. But quite quickly, that was kind of overtaken by this, this idea of community and the idea that it's a multiplayer game and lots of people are going to be playing it. Um, and so what's, and, and it's good to see that there has been talk of how can we make this game appeal to a larger market? How can we get more people in? Because everybody realizes that, you know, Elite and Frontier and First Encounters, they're very old games. And as a genre, it's been overlooked, um, space sim genre, quite recently. So obviously, it's, it's, it's not just a case of getting people back into the space genre, but it's also about getting people into a, a community. And it's good to see that that is on people's priority list. And it, it kind of dawned on me, um, I was playing um, Grand Theft Auto online with Fozzer and some other people. Um, and it was interesting to listen to some of the people who were playing because they were only playing because real life people that they knew were playing. Mm. You know, that's why they got in on the game. They wouldn't have played online otherwise. And so I think it's going to be quite an interesting experience knowing that most of the people, you know, from day one online um, are going to be people that might not necessarily think of themselves as multiplayer people, but they're playing because they trust the people they're going to be with and that there's going to be this friendly community experience, uh, you know, and all these fears of, you know, all these other multiplayer games that they've heard about mm. or they might have experienced, you know, they're willing to give it a shot. And maybe that, as a kind of a snowball effect, it might do something for the game uh, in terms of the multiplayer experience, you know, yeah, going yeah. forward. So, so you're, you're you're effectively you're thinking that 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 community element is the unique, you know, is a unique property. It may not necessarily be a selling point to begin with, but I guess it, it becomes a unique property of what's uh, what's there. I think it has. Yeah, sure. Not just. I mean, I'm sure there's there's a lot of other Kickstarters which have enjoyed support, mm. but this seems to be the one where it's really you know carried on the momentum of the community. And if anything, the community's grown. Mm. You know, the forums may not be as diverse as I might have expected, but no, you know, with what we've seen with who's listening to the podcast and the people turning up at events, you know, there are a lot of people who are who are kind of joining on with the momentum of of the game. Okay, Chris, your thoughts? Yeah, I can definitely agree with some aspects of what John was saying there. This is a thing that was occurring to me, actually, listening to a podcast. I'm not sure if it was one of ours or someone else's. But there was this thing about, you know, talking about, oh, you know, everybody kind of bantering on the forums and how they all say, oh, I'm going to shoot you and I'm going to shoot you. And the thing that's occurred to me, actually, about the way the community has really kind of come together over the last year, that it's actually far more likely that you're going to get an influx of players when the game is finally released, you know, post-gamma, that haven't been part of the community. And actually, when those people start doing piracy and killing and all that sort of thing, I actually think it's more likely that people who've been part of the forum process are actually going to band together kind of against the new players. Not like in a, not like in a really elitist kind of way, you know, to... to trying to avoid a pun but um just to try and i think it will just be a thing that everybody knows each other and actually there's this whole thing obviously you know with drew being imperial and, and all that sort of thing but i i actually think that if there was some guy i didn't know that i've been matched with 
you know, that's not part of the forums and he's attacking me and Drew's around, I'm going to be kind of saying, Drew, can you come and give me a hand with this guy kind of thing? And I think, you know, I, I can see it working out that way. It just makes me laugh because in a weird way, you know, you arrive in the system and you instantly get killed and then you see Psycho Cal killed you and you're like, oh, I'll get you. But whereas if it was some noob guy, <laughs> you might be more offended, I guess. Well, it's- Report griefing. Yeah. <laughs> if, anyone, if anyone I don't know kills me, it's that's, that's how it works. <laughs> well, I, I, I guess I mean that's you know that that's kind of that that process is 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 a tricky balance because um, I I kind of outlined some principles on this in the, the immersion thread uh, a week or so ago where if you take you know the the costume fest experience that Chris and I have, have both participated in. In that, the organisers of a particular costume fest that we've both been to set up the nations in a way that the the leaders of those nations are are staff characters. So they basically they have you know someone there who they've given a free ticket to who has a character that is controlled by ultimately by the staff, but uh, but this person plays and they are the first point of contact who are in charge of that particular nation and that top-down approach allows them then to structure how those nations work so if your king is you know is effectively is controlled by the the organizer then you know that that allows a pyramid structure to be put in place i'm not suggesting frontier do that but they do have a similar setup in that all of the corporations and all of the factions are controlled by frontier so you know they're not saying that they're going to let us as players go and be heads of this or head of that which means that the cultural you know sort of uh, balance and the societal balance and the political balance of the game is, you know, still held within their hands. And then we obviously we sort of take up posts and positions within those those structures. Now, when we get to alpha, what will then happen is obviously players will go around and they will go and do playery things and you know test stuff and change stuff. And but we're also in a position to be able to start setting down some of the rituals and things that that people are going to do in the game from there on. And we. As a community, you know, those those who are alpha testers and those who are not alpha testers but are talking to the alpha testers on the forums, they're in a position to be able to set out what the rituals are. So it, it kind of, you know, a symptom of that is when we start talking about rubbish dumping in Slough, everybody starts talking about rubbish dumping in Slough. And apologies, Kate, but, you know, it, it kind of... It is that snowball effect, and I'm I'm just using it as a you know as a as a as a clear example. So, and I'm not saying that we're that particular power in that regard, but you know, people in the in the alpha test, if they start agreeing a particular password, then um, you know everybody will uh, will perhaps adopt it. So it makes for a, a really interesting sort of set of of rules. The only worry I have is is what Chris said about the idea of you know when someone outside the community sort of comes in and, and there is this sort of binding together. My worry is that that can become a sort of a very insular setup and I'm not I don't think it is at the moment. I think we have a very welcoming community and I think uh, there isn't a problem there. But I don't want to see it go the other way. I don't want to see it go too much about preservation of identity uh, at the expense of, uh, of making the game popular. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, th- I think that's absolutely right. And, and, I, and I'd, I'd also like to think that there is an aspect of, you know, within this community, because it is a more mature gaming community, and I mean mature in the actual sense of the word now, not just because we're all old. Um, but I think, you know, a bit like when I used to go online and play MUDs, 
you know, back in the 90s, there was this kind of sense that the high-level players would take the kind of level one to fives under their wing and kind of teach them how to play the game a little bit. And not that I want exactly that same thing to happen, but I'd quite like to see that sort of vibe. I was actually, I had a, I went to a, um, the Queen official tribute gig uh, on Saturday night and it was, it was a surprise from my wife. And it was a bit of a mixed thing because she'd said that she'd organised a surprise for me. And I don't really like surprises. And I, I particularly don't like surprise presents um, because I don't cope very well with the pressure of having to like the thing that's a surprise. If I know about it, I can kind of, I can kind of prep my reaction. And on, and on the way there, I kind of got this, I, I kind of realised because of the things she was saying, that we were going to a gig. And I was immediately thinking, oh God, I hate gigs. I, really, I mean, I love live music, but yeah. I actually dislike going to gigs because I don't like crowds and I don't like stupid people. And generally speaking, gigs are a good place where you find a big crowd of stupid people. But actually, I was I was really relieved when it was a Queen gig, partly because obviously, you know, Queen are my favourite band, but also because the, the average age in the room was well over 40. And it was, even though it was quite a busy gig, it was a really nice crowd. And the thing you noticed that was different is when the room cleared at the end, there were very few cups and litter on the floor. Most people had taken their cups back to the bar, which is really rare at a gig. And um, it's kind of a bit like that with the Kickstarter and the elite community. It's kind of renewed my faith in wanting to play a game in multiplayer because I think I'm less likely to make meet idiots that make my multiplayer experience awful. And that's what drives me away from multiplayer because I go online and I just, you know, it's the old stereotype thing if you just get sworn at by 13-year-olds and you just can't be bothered with the hassle of it but actually the people if the people in the elite community are representative of the demographic that are going to be into this game then i think we're going to have a good time yeah i'd agree with that i think there's something else there that um actually that you've kind of touched on a little bit is that the frontier have set this out so that the galaxy or the you know the environmental partial sort of environment or the environment that we're playing in anyway is essentially is procedurally generated and massive so by it being as big as it is actually you almost reverse the dynamics of that multiplayer environment because there is this typical idea if you look at other games that effectively where they create choke points where they create small sort of areas of territory where things turn on themselves inside the you know the the game environment that encourages people to essentially to go against each other because there is a you know a, a certain element of claustrophobia, not necessarily you know massive element of claustrophobia because there is a vast amount of space, but you know there's a certain amount of uh, everyone going through particular places. The thing with this is by turning that on its head and saying actually this galaxy is so big that you may not even get to the you know to the end of it, you encourage players to bind together to achieve things because if they don't bind together there's no one else and they won't achieve those things and actually that creates a very interesting different dynamic anyway to the type of gameplay that we're you know that we're looking to encounter indeed we shall move on to what alan calls the boring bit i so don't <laughs> the DD. never call it the boring bit <laughs> Okay, we'll just jump straight into the DDF, uh, and this week, uh, the big one was the ship's cruise. Crew functionality, it, the interesting thing about this is they've kept it simple from previous games. For me, in Frontier, the one thing that was kind of disappointing about crew was it was, mo- it was more of like a shackle than anything else. It was something that you had to have to fly the bigger ships, and all it did really was cost you money and 
could sometimes be awkward in that you'd need to find them. And, you know, if you found the ship you wanted, but there wasn't enough crew, you'd have to wait around for them and things like that. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that it's going to be exactly like that in Elite Dangerous, but they've kept it that kind of simple. They want to try and keep it simple from this proposal, which is basically that to fly these bigger ships, you, you need a crew. They've initially said that they don't want to build too much of a game into that, although they are willing to explore options in terms of gameplay. You know, what happens if crew members don't agree with what you're doing or what if you don't pay them enough, I guess? Is something going to happen? Are there going to be events based on that? But the important thing, the important additions now is they've added metrics to them so that uh, crew can have stats in terms of, you know, how good are they at firing guns, engineering, piloting. If you're not, if you know, if you're not piloting, they can take over. Or there's mention of like a marine um, so that in future updates, if, if your ship gets boarded, that crew can help defend it in that way so they have these kind of stats but that's where it ends really and i think i think frontier wanted to kind of leave it open to get people's ideas at first but the interesting thing for me was that they added this concept of mechanical crew which i guess are just units that you can slot into your ship um, and can perform certain functions you know i'd imagine firing a gun is pretty straightforward for a computer um, and i guess piloting as well so what were your thoughts on this guys chris I think on the one hand, they, they did keep it quite simple. But on the other hand, I think some of the things that the different elements they've, in, they've created imply actually is kind of like a whole can of worms. So, for example, there's this thing about how you can have a, a crew member who is rated to fly the ship. So if they're flying the ship, what's the player doing? Because we haven't had a lot of detail about any types of gameplay not kind of involved, you know, being behind the flight stick. And, you know, I mean, maybe because all, all stuff we've seen about turrets so far has actually been about tracking turrets. So maybe this is about getting a crew member to fly evasion while you man a turret and, you know, happily shoot at targets. Um, the other thing in here, this, this idea of having a crew member who's good at, you know, it specifically says repelling borders. Well, does that mean that when the update comes to walk around the inside of ships, that actually there's going to be a first person shooter element there? I mean, I'm not saying that's definitely what they're going to do, but it, but it implies to me that if crew are going to have the ability to be AI defenders in a person-to-person way, you are going to have to have some kind of walking around and shooting thing. E- either that or there will be some sort of, like a sort of strategy minigame almost, which, do you know what I'm saying? And it sounds horrible. But, but this idea that you somehow have this turn-based combat thing when, when, you, when you board someone's ship. Elite meets laser squad. Yeah, I mean, there was there was a game I played on the DS called Infinite Space that had this thing where you you would be, it was like a fleet battling thing, but you could board ships to take them over, and it had this horrible rock paper scissors battle thing. But then you know at the same time, I don't want to do down the idea that you know Elite Dangerous could have a really exciting first person shooter on board ships as part of it. So my brother's been commenting to me about this uh, new David Cage game, the uh, Beyond Two Souls. Um, and he's kind of finding it a bit mixed. But one of the things he's saying about it is, as a kind of part of the gameplay, because, you know, the game is a, a mishmash of different things, but as part of it, there's like a sort of first-person shooter, which, from my brother's point of view, it's as good a first-person shooter in that moment as a game which is an FPS from start to finish. Mm. So I don't think there's anything wrong with Elite Dangerous having a first-person shooter as part of it. I'm just... Because we've talked previously about this thing about what is the core experience of Elite, you know, I'd hate to see Elite Dangerous do like a first-person shooter badly or kind of dilute the gameplay a bit. I don't know. It's tricky. 
Well, Carrier Command did it, and I mean, I know I harp on about Carrier Command a few times, but um, the recent Gaia Missions um, had a first-person shooter in it, which was all right in that, you know, it was a nice additional add-in to the gameplay. The only problem was they overpowered the rifle, and so the, uh, you know, the, the player ended up just being able to take everything out. But there were some lovely little um, Easter eggs in that, in that you know, there was one bit where you could get into the control room of your damaged carrier and you uh, you found a secret room, you flipped a switch, and suddenly you were controlling a robot who was in a secret area of the carrier and was um, was attacking other robots, which was really cool. And that, you know you only found that you know sort of for a limited period of time and then he got blown up and then you went back to yourself and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, you know, it could be could be awesome. Um, and you know, there's there's lots of possibility there. I think the only worry I had, and John and I commented on um, on the, the crew thread, the only worry I had was that there were a couple of comments later on from the designers that talked about making the design even simpler than the one they proposed and actually closing down some of the um, the possibilities. My concern there was that you know there didn't seem a lot of point in in putting a proposal up and asking for for comments and you know and ideas and then saying well actually we may have to to make it even simpler than this so we may not be able to listen to or use anything that anybody says so yeah so I was a bit concerned about that I like the initial proposal I think the initial proposal was fine I wouldn't necessarily like it to be simpler what I do think is they should if they've got all these ratings then I'd rather not have stat numbers. I think if they've got ratings with the EFP, i.e., you know, the old ratings that uh, that we're having that players are going to have, elite, deadly, dangerous, all the rest of that, should be the same for all of the crew. Yeah, you know, following on from your point about you know this this simplistic approach. I mean, I thought that you know what they mentioned was already simplistic in that there was no you know they didn't really develop the crew much more apart from as we said you know stats than previous games. The only thing that I think was slightly different was that it may be possible to pick up crew through missions, you know, and I guess maybe they might be temporary crew or something, I don't know. But my point was that if crew and mechanical crew were effectively the same thing, both in that they both had stats, in that, you know, if it was crew... Uh, like human crew, you would pay them more, the better they were. Or if it was mechanical crew, you paid more for them and you paid more for maintenance. You know, they were effectively the same thing as as far as the game's concerned. So if them as developers weren't going to develop crew into into a you know a sizable part of the game until a further update, then perhaps just not have crew. You know, just give them the mechanical stuff, I guess, because effectively they're the same thing at the moment. I feel. Well, I, I guess there's a problem there in that you know. It- if you if you create a fictional sort of universe and you've you've given the premise that crew are you know are part of, of particular ships and everything else, even if they don't have very much to them, then you know they still need to be people um, in in terms of a fictional premise, and there still needs to be a distinctive difference. There's also the fact that you know your balance in terms of mechanical crew is towards how autonomous that mechanical crew is how much decision making it can do for itself and how much you are determining that as being artificial intelligence or not artificial intelligence which of course is you know is a, a plot related issue in uh, the frontier universe there was, there was one thing i did quite like though because there was a suggestion in there that robot crew could be sort of broken down to uh, cargo and vice versa, that if you had robot crew in cargo, you could then deploy them to man your ship. And there was an aspect of that that I quite liked, because obviously in, certainly in Frontier, I can't remember as far back as Elite, uh, but you had robots as a shippable commodity, 
And I quite liked the idea that actually it was the shippable commodity version of robots, that if you had it in your hold and one of your crewmen got killed, you could just go and get a robot out of your cargo and take them out of the box and say, go and man that console kind of thing. I thought it it struck me as being quite flexible because the other thing I liked the idea of was if you had an all-robot crew and you fly into a system that for some reason there's a critical shortage of robots and they're offering way above the odds for uh, robots, you know, you'd sell your crew and take on cheap humans for the return journey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I do like that. But it's quite interesting that you mention that because unless there's a way for you to, if you get bored of your human crew, chuck them on ice, then actually mechanical crew seem to have the advantage over human crew that you can take them off and put them in storage or take them out of storage, whereas you don't have that with human crew. True. So I'm happy to work with robots. You know, they don't talk back to you. <laughs> there's, no, there's no lip off them in the middle of a battle. I, I kind of thought you'd be uh, happy to work with robots, John. Okay, and so moving on to the docking revision proposal. What do you think of this, Chris? Yeah, there's a little detail in this docking revision that's quite interesting um, because it talks about automated docking. Now, obviously, one of the things that has kind of been a thing in, in elite history is that originally you had to land the ship manually and then later down the line you would kind of get a docking computer. And then in Frontier, they turned it around and kind of gave everyone an autopilot from the beginning and you had to sort of make yourself play it without, you know, without that that help. In this, the, the, the section on automated docking seems to suggest to me that if there is automated docking, it's powered by the station, not by your ship. Which means that depending on, you know, where you are in the universe, what system you're visiting, there'll be some planets that your stations that you visit that will actually take control of the docking process for you, and there'll be others where, you know, you'll you'll always have to do it manually. And I'm wondering if this is. Going, there's going to be an element maybe of the difficulty curve of the game. I'm wondering if the starting systems for a lot of players will be stations that have remote control docking and leaving that manual docking process for later in the game, you know, for when you're branching out and visiting other systems. It seems to me, yeah, I agree, that in this they seem to be trying to say that, first of all, that docking manually is not going to be as hard as in the original Elite because they want people to be able to, to do it. Not easy, easy, but they don't want to scare people off. But at the same time, yeah, you know, I think the automatic pilot is now more of, it's going to be more of a convenience for players rather than something that the noobs have. They do want to encourage new players to do it because, as you said, the further you get out on the frontier, the more likely you're going to have to do it anyway. I mean, especially these um, pirate bases and places like that, they're not going to have it. I would... You know, then that kind of leads on to the point I was going to make is that if you've got particular different types of base, then those particular different types of base might be some might be accessible through manual, some might be accessible through automatic, and therefore you've got a, a perfect opportunity there to encourage skill based uh, reward uh, from uh, from the whole process, haven't you? There's two things going on. I mean, Frontier said they want to make it easy to manually dock because they don't want to scare away players, Mm. which I can completely understand. But at the same time, you know, I can understand that they want to try and keep some kind of a skill-based thing for, you know, the outer systems and, and you know, the difficult places. But those two things don't go together, do they, really? I mean, unless they're going to have certain bases that are harder to land at than others, I don't know. I'd be happy to see that if it means that, you know, you've got to be a really damn good pirate pilot if you want to dock in this really bizarre place. But it has great prices on stolen gear. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, one that, I mean, the other one we've discussed that, you know, we've sort of overlooked perhaps the difficulty of it. But when we've 
seen images of this um, the federal capital ship and the idea that it's got this central trench down which the landing bays are located, you're effectively going to have to fly down this trench and then make a right turn to get into the docking bay. That's going to be quite tough, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, a, a sort of slow to a dead stop as well, or, or perhaps if their ship is moving, uh, you know, match speed, you know, is, is, is quite difficult. And then manage your turn, you know, in terms of uh, maneuvering jets would be tricky. Um, also, I mean, if you're in the larger ships, outside coupling, you know, because they've talked about the idea that ships can, uh, can dock with each other. That's, you know, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But also the, the larger ships are not going to fit in the docking bays. So if the larger ships aren't fitting in the docking bays of some stations, they've got to line up with some sort of grapple, um, yeah. which I think in itself will be, will be tricky. It'll be interesting to see how much of this you know, is automated, how much of it is manual. I mean, we're only going to find out when we, we start you know, sort of looking at it, aren't we? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's all to do with frames of reference. And I, I was hoping that, I mean, although Frontier have said that they're kind of moving towards this kind of free flight system with, within systems that when you do arrive at the space station it's all about you know points of reference and things like that so that if you aren't if you do arrive next to a station you're probably going to be in the same orbital path with it and so that's one kind of thing that you don't need to worry about in terms of parking your ship does that make sense yeah possibly i mean one of the issues i've had with you know because I've, I've sort of dipped in and out of playing frontier elite 2 recently and um, I, I sort of had a go with playing it on manual flight. And one of the things I found was that depending on how you approach certain orbital stations, if you sort of approach them following their orbit, sometimes they get away from you and you think, hang on a minute, the station was ahead of me a minute ago and now it's disappeared around the planet and it's coming up behind me. So, um, But then obviously in Illy Dangerous, we haven't got this business of fast-forwarding time so i don't think that will be quite as noticeable but that's the thing i mean if you want to dock with a space station and it's in orbit of a planet then in theory you have to be in the same orbit with it mm. uh, and then you just adjust your ship relative to to that space station and that's what i hope and i think that's originally why frontier wanted to go with this concept of points of interest yeah because what you do is you just be zapping around a system and you just be arriving in certain places and the frame of reference would be whatever the feature is, whether it be a space station or an asteroid field or whatever. And so that's one thing you didn't need to worry about. Yeah, but it's, you know, I mean, I can see why that, that changed because, of course, that sort of really narrows down the experience. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you're one of the big features of the game is the fact that it's such a vast amount of space, you don't really want something that, just says to you here 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 and here just go to these places you, you want to be able to explore that vastness as much as you possibly can but i think the i, I don't know, i think the original exploration idea was that you'd be you know you'd, you'd go to one point of interest and then you'd send out your scanners or your probes or whatever and they would then go and discover further points of interest and in a way they were basically saying that as long as you keep on exploring it creates more points of interest for you to go to whereas I don't know, that kind of bypassed the idea of driving around looking for something. But at the same time, though, John, if it was creating further points of interest and you didn't have any kind of midway drive between hyperdrive and sort of sublight, then, you know, or, you know, low speed sublight, you know, that, um, that we're expecting people to be able to maneuver in, then those points of interest would either have to be crammed into quite a small space if you think about the size of the galaxy 
or the hyperdrive would you'd have to be able to have a hyperdrive that could jump to places that you didn't know anything about what i got from what they originally said before all these changes was that you know you would go and the time sync would be the you know the exploration the sending out of probes or scanning and then you'd find stuff and then jumping between them would pretty would be pretty much instant uh, i see okay so the probes essentially would uh, would would essentially be the they they effectively be hyperdrived, so you yeah, you'd if, have, yeah, yeah that's where the time that's that's where you would spend your time is exploration. Yeah. Um, just going back to the stations, something I'd love them to do as a modification of the space stations is, and I you know obviously I have no idea if if they will or they won't, but um, one thing I was thinking about when I was writing was the Coriolis. You know, there, there's been some discussion about the idea of. Uh, the docking port becoming choked because too many people want to dock. Now, I'm not I'm not too worried about that. But one thing I was thinking about was if um, if a planet's got a Coriolis or another type of station above it, then that station is the point of trade with the interstellar community. Fine, but it's also the point of trade with the planet to the interstellar community. So why not have a docking port on the planet side and have a docking port on the uh, facing away side? So effectively, the docking port on the planet side is continually taking planet side traffic. You, then it, it, it feels like a, a, a sort of a, a, a thriving market hub, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and a great opportunity for some uh, quick and dirty piracy. Yeah. If you've got cargo yeah. ships constantly coming and going from the surface, quick hit and run. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it makes sense in terms of, you know, if the, the Viper launch then, because what would happen is the, um, the planet side dock would be in constant use and you know it gives you an alternative you might be able to squeeze into the planet side dock if you uh you know if you you were looking to sort of i don't know lose somebody or something else amid a crowd of, of ships whatever you want to do mm. but at the same time the the security services are obviously going to come out of the interstellar side um and that way you know you've you've kind of got I, I i just like the idea of that i like the look of that as well you know the, the fact that someone tears in from outside space and then hugs the uh, the the planet's atmosphere, uh, using it as a slingshot to get round to the station side, and then just tears into the um, uh, into the the planet side trade shuttles, and you see these vipers or uh, you know eagles or whatever is used as the um, security service erupting out of the interstellar side uh, docking port to come and give chase. What a great scene! And I know it's not been suggested, but I think a tiny modification to the stations to give them a planet side dock. It, it kind of makes it work. It makes it work in terms of it uh, having a role in uh, in a society's interstellar trade. I, th- I think the other thing that, that occurs to me, you know, in this proposal, they they have made a comment towards, you know, what I talked about and what a bunch of people talked about, th- th- this problem of the rotation of the station when you're when you're landing, and they have put a thing in here under the stuff about automated docking saying rotational correction within the station will alleviate a lot of the difficulties in landing with a spinning station now i don't know if that means that stations with automated docking will correct the spinning problem for you or whether that just means that within stations there will generally be rotational correction which i have to say it kind of it rankles with me a little bit just because and I, I've said it before, I can't remember if it, if it made the podcast, but to me, there is this physical issue of moving, putting an object inside another spinning object, which they've kind of fixed by sort of saying, we'll click our fingers and give you rotational correction. 
But when it came to the old issue of artificial gravity, they sort of said, oh, we don't want to just click our fingers and say artificial gravity. You know, if ships don't have spinning portions, then they don't have gravity. And you kind of think, well, here you're kind of creating a a convenient bit of sci-fi magic to allow for centripetal rotation, which is a lie. And (laughs) um, whereas in another area, you've kind of said, well, no, 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 you have to have spinning to have artificial gravity. So it's just something that rankles with me a bit, because I think they've obviously come up with it as a problem and it it is just too difficult to fix. Well, I would think, yeah, possibly. But I I would think as well, the the difference from, you know, from a a point of view of the, the impression is that Elite is, you know, from its inception, uh, in all of the games, one of the iconic things is the rotational space station. And so following that correlation, the idea of artificial gravity doesn't really fit with the idea of a rotational space station. It might fit if you could contrive it slightly to say only small objects can can have artificial gravity, larger objects can't. These are the you know these are the technological uh, technological limitations, blah 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 blah, or it's inefficient or something like that. But of course they you know they've gone for that absolute limit and that absolute change, and it does create a you know very unique theme. But you know in this, what's the there isn't much visual capital in not having a short contrivance, and I yeah. think that's the I think that's the reason behind it. And I you know. I can kind of understand. I think we're going to, you know, there will be many things where there are going to be contrivances. You know, at the end of the day, most of the hyperdrive and frame shifting obviously is a contrivance. I, I think they've decided that's the happy medium. And yeah, maybe it will rankle for some of us. You know, some of us don't like sparkly vampires. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, that happens. Ah, fuck sparkly vampires. <laughs> Coming this week on Escape Velocity. Dreamware trauma. That's a bad business, my friend. One of your customers? Thankfully not, but I have a friend who is exhibiting worrying behaviour and I'd like to know if they have a bad dream sequence. Well, it's more common with bootleg terminals, although even Signy and Dreams have seen cases. They hush it up, of course. All I can tell you is that the subject will suffer hallucinations, memory loss, struggle to tell fantasy from fiction. Memory loss. Might they not know the current data? It's certainly possible. If the entertainment they were watching was set in a certain period, an episode of Dreamware Trauma might leave them believing it's the date of the story. Assuming we're talking about an entertainment sequence here, not an educational use. Educational use? Yeah, 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 sure. Schools use them, military uses them. They have modified Dreamware units which speed up the education process. Hell, even Signy and Dreams do custom units. They're pretty careful, though. Rich parents tend to be unhappy when their kids come home with DT. May said she never finished her school. Could an episode of Dream by Trauma be triggered if the subject didn't complete the sequence? Well, sure. Especially if the connection was terminated without shutting down. That's really damaging. But hey, the good news is, your friend might get better if they can go back and see it to the end. After seeing what Big Sister did with their education, I think May's better off dropping out. Perhaps. Going back in is risky either way. Risky? Why? If you suffered a dreamware trauma, especially if you have the more serious symptoms like hallucinations and schizophrenia, going back into any dream sequence is risky. You take the delusion in with you. Sometimes you broadcast the nightmares into the dream sequence itself. It can get real trippy. So I've heard. If someone on this station wanted to find someone's records, where would they go? 
A data exchange, of course. And does the data exchange use Dreamware terminals? Of course. They all do. Space. I've got to go. Hey, my blueprint. Keep it. Escape Velocity Series 2, Episode 2, coming this week. Okay, and so now we move on to Community Corner, and as always, the writer section first. So, Alan, what's been happening in the writers' forum? Well, Chris has as much access as me, so um, let's let's throw it over to Chris to start with, and uh, I'll see if he misses anything. Okay. Again, I, th- I think it's been mostly me. <laughs> I seem to keep asking questions about various bits of tech. Um, well, certainly in the anthology forum, there has been uh, a lot of activity in the anthology forum with everybody getting their, you know, drafts up online for everybody else to, to read and comment on. Uh, there's been lots of activity around the illustrators um, who are putting together some, some nice drawings for, for the book. And there've been, you know, there've been a few bits of uh, clarification of some of the technology. There was a question about the frame shift drive about yeah. super cruise. And it was a question about the fact, cause obviously John Harper isn't in yeah. the DDF so he was asking he didn't understand about the super cruise drive and i was pointing out that in the ddf proposal it suggests that your your craft has to achieve super cruise before mm. you can activate your hyperdrive which is quite a big thing and i think people have overlooked it yeah no i agree um i'm i'm obviously in a slightly beneficial state in that um my uh, my book is set before super cruise <laughs> <laughs> and frame shift so, uh, so that kind of helps me a little bit. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I do think certain authors have, uh, have overlooked it. It will be one of those things that we're going to have to modify. I mean, you know, mm. we're all those of us that have, have completed our, our you know, novel drafts are, are kind of readying ourselves to a point of having to make substantial changes. You know, because obviously, as soon as the the map is released and some of the other materials released, you you have to, to kind of stay current. And yeah, you know, I mean, it is difficult when somebody has not necessarily got access or not read some of the stuff. Yeah. Um, something, something we can talk about in terms of—I uh, don't know if it was said at the last um, last podcast. Corporations guides up. Did I say that last time? I think you said that in the last podcast. Did I? I can I can talk a little bit about the corporations guide. I can't really talk about too many of the specific corporations, but I can say it is worth at this age, if you are a, if you are very interested in the backstory and the history of the game, at this stage it is worth refreshing yourself of the Frontier Gazetteer and possibly of some of the Frontier First Encounters journals because actually there's quite a lot of information that has been preserved and is going to be current in the new game. Now, you know, there may be one or two tiny changes and what have you, but I can, you know, I mean, knowing that I kind of sat there when I was writing some of the uh, the content, I was sat there with the Frontier Gazetteer next to me, you know, in page references and checking things and, and you know, and going through it in, in quite a lot of detail. You know, it is worth perusing those guides and finding them online and having a look at them if you want to soak up a certain amount of of elite law because I think that you'll find that it's probably 85%, maybe more than that, is going to remain pretty much the same. That's good because that's what I based most of uh, Escape Velocity on. I mean, you know, <laughs> the, the, key thing, the key thing we know that's going to be different is the map. You know, we know that the map is not going to be, and everybody knows that because, you know, Michael has said that they're not going to flatten the universe in the same way that it was flattened for Frontier. So that does create a, a massive 
obstacle and uh, and difficulty for writers because of course we don't know distances so we've written scenes where we have no idea you know what the distances between particular systems um, are going to be or whether indeed some of those systems are going to feature so you know we've got to work quite hard on on that to, to get those things right but in terms of other elements of the background uh, and story it is quite nice to you know to to know that some of the things that people grew to rely on and uh, and kind of remember you know they're going to be there okay it's facebook question time the first one from psycho mad cow I would love to hear your thoughts on how the community might change post gamma when we are busy playing and not talking about what is to come. And I think Rory's question kind of follows on from it. Yes. Uh, what will Lave Radio's role be and all the other podcasts and community work, Retro Lave, uh, BS News, etc.? Um, it will be a real shame if they fizzle out into oblivion. What are your thoughts, guys? Well, I mean, we're all kind of hoping that we can continue running Lave Radio, aren't we? Um, I'd like to continue running it and I'd like to, you know, to have a focus and a reason. And while it has a reason and while we all have an interest in doing it, I think we'll, we'll continue running it. Um, it depends really in terms of what content we can, you know, we can bring and what, uh, what ideas we can bring to, you know, to the game as things go on. Lave Radio needs a use. Yeah, for it to continue, it needs a use, and at the same time, it needs us to have a, um, you know, an interest. So, you know, those are the two things that will factor it. And if it continues to have a use, then we'll continue to run it. With the other podcasts, I've no idea. I mean, you know, again, I would say the the same. If they feel there is a need and a use, then it will be up to them. In terms of how the community will change, then we when we start to play, well, the community is quite creative, and the community has a tendency to make all sorts of stuff, and sometimes you know, you can kind of see that some of that is effectively an excuse while we're waiting, you know, we're making things uh, to just, you know, fill the time while we're leading up to what's going to be made and, and, you know, and playing the game. But once the game is there, I guess you're still going to want to talk to each other. You're still going to want to find things out. There is a sharing of information that will be, you know, will be important and crucial. I'm hoping not too much information because I, you know, I want to kind of discover things for myself, but at the same time, you know, if, if if people have got a reason to talk, then they find a reason to talk. And I'm kind of hoping the community will bind together in the way that we discussed earlier on, um, attempting to achieve things in the game, but also bind together just to just to share the fact that, you know, this is what we made and this is, you know, we all contributed in part to the development of something something special. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've, we've already talked a bit earlier this evening about how the community will change once the game is released and there is a wider audience for the game than, than, than it's already enjoyed. I mean, it's going to be the current community plus hopefully an influx of new fans and new players. So I think that'll change things. And I think, you know, our role is, you know, has always been to kind of provide a reflection on what's going on. And I think, you know, where that is changing and evolving that's the sort of thing we'll be talking about and we'll be, you know, I guess talking to new people coming in about their experiences with it. Okay, second question from Martin Forrester. Any other games or franchises you'd like to see redone or sequelized? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, actually, because if you think back to the sort of early years of, of computer gaming, um, every game that came out was almost a genre in itself. Because games in the 80s were so kind of experimental. People weren't coming to it and saying, you know, let's make a, 
let's make a shooter or let's make a this or let's make a that. There was an element of kind of, they had a concept in their head of a game they were trying to create and there were no genres at the beginning of the process. So there's lots of odd little things that have sort of fallen a bit by the wayside just because A, technology's moved on and some of those game genres were, you know, very much sort of looking at the ways the technology can be used. And there are other things that because gaming's become very mainstream and because it's become an industry, industries are very risk averse. So actually the kind of games that get produced are very homogenous. And it's why, you know, space trading, fighting shooters have kind of fallen by the wayside because there came a point 10 or so years ago where it wasn't profitable to make space shooters. So nobody made them. And it's, and it's fair to say that in the last 10 years, you know, if you wanted to make a, a first or a third person shooter, that is basically a lot of people see gaming as third person adventures because that's what get played a lot. So I think, you know, there are games I'd like to see come back. And I'm sort of looking around my room at the various uh, boxes of crap I've kept over the years. But um, I was going to say, after your very intelligent deconstruction of game genre, would you like to answer the question, please? <clears throat> yeah, I, I... no. no, no. I can answer it really quickly. Yeah, Myth. Oh, okay. If you ever played Myth or Myth 2 or Myth 3, Myth was awesome. Um, and the atmosphere that Myth created was incredible. It also occupied a, an area that, um, that other games didn't occupy in terms of, uh, you know, I'm a very big fan of Rome Total War. I'm a very big fan of, of those kind of, you know, very big tactical games. But myth occupied a middle ground where you were looking after 30, 40 guys and marching through a, a three-dimensional landscape. Warrior Kings also um, sort of played around with that idea, but it was a bit larger scale. And Warrior Kings played with um, with those kind of resource and content management stuff, which I was never interested in. Myth, you basically, you got a bunch of blokes, you had to go and do a job. And um, if you ran out of stuff, you died and everything was very gory and the landscape was very, uh, you know, very destructive, you know, in terms of reactive. So when things blew up, they really blew up. I've never had an experience like the scary experience I had when I played Myth. Uh, It was fantastic. So I I love that game. Um, Legend. Legend I'd like to see come back, which was uh, a four party adventure isometric, very early isometric, but very cleverly done. And the magic system was incredible. Uh, with a, a rune-based system that uh, allowed you to put together your own ideas for spells. One or two others, Falcon. I loved Falcon in that Falcon had a squadron management system. Falcon 3 had a squadron management system, which I thought was very clever. I'd like to see something uh, pull that together. Yeah, I'm sure I could think of a, a dozen more. No, I mean, there's one, one, one particular game that I've always wanted to see come back. I've even considered doing it myself from time to time. Uh, there was a game called Interphase, which was a game that came out sort of uh, for the Amiga and Atari ST. Gives you an idea of, you know, what sort of year that came out. And it was basically a sort of 3D flight game-ish, similar visually to something like Starglider. And the, the premise of the game was you were flying around in cyberspace, inside a computer. It was a little bit Tron-like. And all of the objects that you were flying around were kind of virtual reality representations of elements of a computer system. So you had two aspects of the game. There was your flying around trying to avoid getting shot down by antivirus software. But you also had a blueprint map that showed a little person walking around on it. And the idea was that that person was infiltrating a high security building. And you had to kind of manage the strategy of their path through 
various turntable doors and security cameras and electrified floors and all kinds of real world things. But your way to influence the real world was to fly around virtual reality and interface with the systems kind of against the clock. It was a bit of a sort of Twitch game in the sense that, you know, if you had switches that you had to hit, the person would, you'd open the door for the person to start walking down the corridor and then you'd have to get to the switch to deactivate the electrified floor before they stepped on it. So it was that kind of game. It was just an interesting, it was just an interesting concept. It was an interesting mix of strategy and Twitch action, which I don't think is really done all that well now. Well, I think my choice would be Leisure Suit Larry. <laughs> and and I, it's quite funny because read, I've read some blog posts about this quite recently, and it's not just me that thinks it. But uh, I mentioned before in jest probably about in Elite, you know, the orbiting brothels and things like that. And, and you know, I was pretty much joking. But but what I said after that, I think is still pretty, you know, I, I agree with, which is that computer games seem to be the only medium which hasn't taken the adult market seriously. There are films and there are series out there which are very geared towards adult themes. I'm not just talking about blatant sex and violent scenes. I'm just talking about adult themes. Um, and it's something that I, I still don't think that the video games industry has got to grips with. So it would kind of be cool to see a game out there just say, look, this game is for adults because not because of, you know, you can shoot someone in the face or that you can go and have sex with them in your car, but because this game is is it's it's about adults and it's about adult stuff, and I'd really like to see uh, maybe maybe there has been some movement towards it more recently, but I would like to see more like that. And I think a Leisure Suit Larry <laughs> remake kind of might be able to do that, especially if it's coupled with Oculus Rift. <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah, I think there is an issue with the fact that games don't. I don't think it's just kind of adult themes. I think games have not been very good at, at making a game out of the complex interaction between human beings. And I think as well, if you start talking about you know Legacy Larry, you're obviously talking about sexual issues. And I think you know sexual stuff is the kind of the, the coming together, if you like, you know, of all of all the complexities between human interaction. Sex is a kind of focal point for it. And I think it's, you know, it's an aspect of our interaction with each other. Really, in games, the only interactions we've kind of got down are buying stuff off each other and killing each other. I think that's fair to say. No, no, sure. And I, I don't think, you know, that computer games have completely shied away. I mean, we have had Leisure Suit Larry, which may have been tongue-in-cheek when it was invented, but I think it was also a bit of a milestone in terms of you know subjects which could be included in video games. But I, I think the problem is that um, I think it's one to do with perception of what video games are. Although now there's more um, adult gamers than ever, and older gamers, and also across both genders, you know, and casual gamers as well. I think that we still haven't quite caught up with the other mediums in terms of what content is targeted. That's my point, I guess. Yeah, totally. Um, and that and the, every time a video game comes out, if it contains something which might be bad for children, that is a story. Even though that game would have on it that, you know, this is not, a, you know, aimed at children, it's adults only. They've had rating systems for ages, um, you know, but because it's a computer game, parents are more than happy to just snap it off the shelves and buy it for their kids if their kids pester them, even though it might not be suitable. And I think because that still exists... Um, that's why it hasn't matured. Perhaps. Well, there's there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one uh, one thing, I mean, you can look at if you look at a comparison to animation 
and the the audience connected to cartoon there was certainly there's been an evolution in the last 20 30 years of the idea of animation being for adults and you know and there being a clear delineated market between animation for children and animation for adults and gradually the audience has evolved in that because there is a, an audience of of people who grew up as children with cartoons and then wanted cartoons enjoyed cartoons as a medium and wanted cartoons that still spoke to them so you know they didn't want cartoons that didn't speak to them anymore it's like you know the chairs uh, in your in your school when you're a kid when you go back as an adult back to those chairs and you look at them and you see that they were all really really tiny but when you were a kid you didn't notice a difference the chair always seems to be the right always seem to be the right size because you know you move through the schools and and the chairs got bigger the the issue with the separate issue with gaming is usually revolving around the fact that the player has a personification within the game and has a role within the game a very direct role whether it's in first person or whether it's in third person they are in control of something that is in the game therefore there is a representation of them in the game and the minute that you've got that what you're actually doing is creating a much closer identification between the player and the fiction of the game than you are in any other medium because film is passive you're looking at characters identifying with them and following their story you don't control how they view through their story or go through their story you just experience it with them and perhaps feel sympathetic or otherwise uh, when things happen to them Similarly with a book, it contrives an environment and it creates quite a personal engagement, a book, um, because obviously the experience of reading it is, is quite personal, but you don't have the control over the character. And similar with other mediums, the minute you get into gaming, you've got control and therefore it, it speaks more directly to the audience and that's why people are worried about it. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that uh, there's a justification for a majority of media effects theories that are wheeled out whenever uh, there is a moral panic in relation to gaming but that's certainly the reason why people have an issue i mean i like to i like to be more hopeful about it and say that i hope that it's just teething problems because actually talking about cartoons if you think back to the early 90s there were a lot of media panics about the fact that japanese anime was coming over to you know europe and 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 people in the media didn't get that cartoons were made for an adult audience and all they saw was, you know, a cartoon featuring demon tentacle rape. And they immediately said, you know, look at this filth that's being peddled to children. And it took a long time to get the message through that this is not peddled to children. If you are showing an adult animated film to children, then you may as well be getting them to watch, you know, Saw or, you know, something like that. Um, well, exactly. And that's why I said it's, it's to do with perception. You know, video games are still kind of considered something that young, you know, adolescents might play rather than something that everyone plays, even though everyone is playing them. But don't, you know, get me started on how fundamentally stupid the mainstream media is. Oh, no, we'll save that for a completely <laughs> separate podcast. Okay, quickly, Giles Connolly says, how about a discussion on hardware specs? No, we're not going to do it. We've done it before. Ah, oh, and that's a real pity because actually this week I've actually now ordered <laughs> yeah we're not going to let you talk about your new pc <laughs> when frontier release some specs we're going to give our stock answer we don't know we wish we knew <laughs> so that chris would realize that he didn't buy quite a good enough graphics card and he'll have to go and buy another one so john virgo uh, i think this is a great question what what changes do you think or would you like to see in sol more stations one on pluto perhaps 
Would you like to see more stuff in Soul, guys? I'd like to see there just being this kind of loosely gathered cluster of rocks where Earth should be, and absolutely no explanation given in any of the documentation or fiction about what happened. <laughs> well, I think it's it's a tricky question because, of course, while I wrote quite a lot of the Federation history, or collated quite a lot of the Federation history, um, so I know what was in Seoul. You know, I mean, most people, you know, you can you can find most of the things that were were available in, uh, uh, you know, the the Frontier Gazetteer and some of the older stuff. You can see what you know, most of the stuff is. I I have to say, you know, if I was thinking sort of pie in the sky and you know what kind of things I, I like, I'm quite a fan. Um, there are certain certain things about the book that I don't like, but there are certain things about the book that I do. Um, Charles Stross's Saturn's Children. Um, I'm very keen on the the idea of how the solar system has been colonized and how there are all these different places all across the solar system, I think is very, very cool. Not necessarily so keen on some of the tone. Um, <laughs> it's a bit of a weird book if you've not read it. But, um, yeah, the, uh, the idea, the expanse of the solar system, I think he gets, he gets across the epicness of our own solar system really, really well, particularly with these outer colonies right on the edge in amongst uh, the you know the the sort of satellites beyond Pluto, I think it's very clever. So um, so yeah, no, you know, I mean something something akin to that would be would be very cool. I su- I suppose the one thing I'd like to see, and I don't think it, it's it's specific to Sol, but I think Sol would be you know the textbook example would be space debris or you know debris you know junk in orbit of planets and stuff like that. You know, if you wanted to go and land at L- you know London. You'd have to navigate through how many satellites and, you know, think of the hundreds, you know, thousands of years of, you know, satellites and stuff been launched into space. And but not just that, you know, all the debris along space lanes, you know, at some stage there would have been, you know, piracy or accidents or something like that. So I'd like to see, you know, the more developed systems having a lot more junk floating around. Yeah, I think the thing I'd like to see, I don't know if I see it in Seoul, but. You know, there was this discussion a long time ago about whether Elite Dangerous would feature a sprawl, um, which is this idea that rather than there being a kind of a planet system or a space station, the idea being that a bunch of spacefarers kind of got their old ships and then welded them together and knocked out the internal walls and basically created a giant floating city out of the hulls of old spaceships. That's something that I just love in any fiction. And I'd love to see... Uh, in Elite Dangerous, a sprawl that you can go and dock with as a space station. Um, I don't think we will. I think they've said that it's not going to be part of the Elite Dangerous universe, but personally, I'd, I'd love to see something like that. Yeah, it's a shame because it kind of fits in with the uh, with the the universe, I'd have thought. But, well, it, uh, it fits with the dredger idea, and it depends if um, if they're going to put dredgers in. You know, dredgers were, you know, this massive sort of bolt together of, of ships, weren't they? So... Uh, Depends if we're actually going to see space dredges. And the last two questions aren't that serious. <laughs> Would it be okay to thaw out slaves and make them dance for you? Well, I sincerely hope so. Once we get the ability to walk around ships, um, you know, I think you're going to be throwing parties on board ships. You're going to want to unfreeze some of those pleasure slaves, make them dance yeah. for you. You know, I, I think this is a conversation a that's obviously... Um, yeah. <laughs> indicating who has sympathies of which particular faction amongst the Lave Radio crew, isn't it, really? Yeah. yeah so well, you know. I'll well, no, leave it, you two to talk about how much you love slaves. 
But it works the other way, because like, if you're an Imperial, you might just thaw out a slave just to get them to make you a cup of tea. Next, could John and Fozza convince Alan that he needs an Oculus Rift? Well, I don't know. Me and Fozza seem to be slightly split on this. Fozza was... He tried it, and he felt a bit sick, I think. But he tried an FPS game, whereas I played a you know a sit-down-and-fly-an-airplane game, and I loved it a lot more. Um, Alan, apparently you're the person that we need to convince... Yeah, sorry, I, I'm. I'm not sure I am the person you need to convince. Um, I loved VR headsets when uh, when they first came out. Uh, I thought they were amazing. As to and I, you know, I'm I'm kind of thinking of my my gaming space uh, up there in the the confines of the loft. I think an Oculus Rift would be amazing for uh, for my gaming space up there. As to whether I would, um, you know, it would be a significant discussion <laughs> to. Uh, to buy an Oculus Rift, but um, yeah, you know, I mean, it uh, it will depend, obviously, on uh, you know what they what they retail at. Okay, we're on the last mile now. November. 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 So apparently, we've raised we, as in me, Chris, and Fozza, and everyone else on the Mobra Mark Three team have raised over two thousand five hundred pounds, putting us. I think we're still in the top twenty UK wide. So well done to the guys growing tashes and especially thank you to everybody who's given us money in, in terms of sponsorship for those of you that haven't seen it uh, drew wager has been writing some uh, fictions some mobra files to go along with this go check it out on facebook just search for mobra mark three yeah well done it uh, it certainly is a, a a massive achievement and uh, i don't know if you've seen but uh, michael brooks has posted a picture on his blog of himself and igor clean-shaven, which is quite something. They look like a pair of brothers. So uh, if you've not had a look, go and have a look at uh, cultofme.blogspot.co.uk. No, no, what's uh, what's particularly funny is that Michael has today posted on his blog a picture of their moustache and beard growth after a week into November. And obviously some of them that are are used to being, you know, bearded, um, obviously, you know, because they have beards, they, they, they haven't been shaving regularly. So having then shaved last Friday, um, they're now almost still clean shaven. It's not going <laughs> yeah. back really as yeah. fast as they imagined it might. <laughs> I was going to say something we ought to apologise for is obviously Foz uh, is not here, so we'll have to apologise for him about all his uh, errors in the, uh, the Conclave broadcast. Um, <laughs> We would uh, we would like to uh, to set the record straight in that um, obviously uh, the reflection broadcast that uh, that they made was a year since the Kickstarter started, not a year since the Kickstarter ended. Uh, right, which, uh, Foz managed to um, to get wrong, which was rather strange. Also, um, Drew Wager has written four novels that are fan fiction related to the Oolite. Uh, game and uh, yeah, subsequently the uh, the original uh, elite fiction sort of uh, uh, universe, um, obviously unofficial uh, prior to uh, elite reclamation. So um, I think everyone kind of got that, you know, by the end. Uh, but bless him. <laughs> and also, um, you know, uh, he 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 called somebody John. So you know, bless you, John. You were obviously missed. And some other poor poor guy got called Alan. So you know, I was obviously missed too. I don't think he missed you, Chris. I, I've been getting the impression that a lot of people think Fozzer is me. 
there's been a lot of comments. There have been a lot of comments that have been sent Foz's way in various times about escape velocity or whatever. And I think having two Chrises on the show is just too complicated. Yeah, yeah. Well, well I mean, maybe we just stick with the three of us then. <laughs> well, we have tried to make it easy. I mean, we we don't actually refer to Chris Forrester as Chris, do we? We've yeah. always called him Fozzer. Yeah, yeah. And if anything, I, on Elite Meet, I was called Chris on one occasion, so it's it's, it's not just Fozzer, I'm afraid. <laughs> just going back to Elite Meet, as I said, thanks to uh, everyone who uh, organised it, you know, Alien, Darren Gray. Uh, also, uh, you know, thanks to... Uh, Karash for bringing in the Oculus, Oculus Rift and Void Sun for the cakes. <laughs> Very nice. And uh, I suppose thanks to Frontier for giving us some concept art. John, what what was with the Hannibal Lecter impression? The cakes. Yeah. They were really nice dude, with dude, some Chianti. Yeah, but, yeah, but dude. <laughs> were they human flesh cakes? <laughs> Why did you do a Hannibal Lecter impression? <laughs> hey, hey! Just because Hannibal Lecter eats like me, okay, it doesn't mean I'm a cannibal. It just—it's just a coincidence. Do you okay? kind of do you kind of inhale cakes? Is that what uh, you I, do? I re- yeah, I do. With, with your tongue, effectively. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <sighs> um. <laughs> and yes, thank you, Frontier, for the concept art they sent along. Although I didn't get any because it ran out by the time I got there. Uh, which picture was it? They had a couple of new pictures there, but they all disappeared very quickly. So um, um, I'm sure Fozza will tell you because he's got some. Yeah, he'll have, he'll have got ten. <laughs> I saw him elbow someone in the face to get to them. Who, who, who was it? Who did he elbow? <laughs> all right, not in the face, but he, he got in there pretty quick. As soon as he saw a pile of um, concept art, which he didn't have, he was straight in there. You know, let, I, let's face it, he is currently the holder of the uh, uh, Elite's biggest fan championship belt, isn't he? Yeah. Um, do you think we should we should accept challenges? Yeah, if anyone thinks they can wrestle Fozzer to the ground, let us know. No, and... I, I, I just think submissions for, you know, are you Elite, Elite's biggest fan? Um, please send us evidence of how you are Elite's biggest photographic fan. Format. Yeah, 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 photographic definitely. evidence of why you are Elite's biggest fan. Send it through to info at laveradio.com because we would dearly love to take the championship belt away from Fozzer. Yeah. What I don't want to see is a Polaroid picture of David Braben blindfolded and tied to a chair or anything bizarre <laughs> like that. Okay? Let's not encourage yeah. too much bizarre You behavior. know, where, where you, you, you choose to take your box set of Elite Dangerous and uh, uh, where, you know, where in your bedroom it, it features is probably not something we want to... Uh, no prostitutes oh. <laughs> with yeah. Michael Brooks cut, cut out cardboard face on or anything like that. And no, okay. Yeah, and, and, no, and no cosplay between you and your missus where one of you's a Cobra Mark III and the other one's a Coriolis station. <laughs> you don't need to see that. Right, let's, let's kill that before it gets absurd. Feedback and shout-outs. So, um, hello to comms from the frontier and BS News. They've released some new stuff. Uh, BS News did also did uh, something Elite Meet and comms from the frontier. Um, I believe the BS News one is already out uh, at time of recording, and I'm sure the comms from the Frontier one will be out shortly. Well, Colin, okay, Ford, so- Colin Ford has been writing Sanctimonious as part of the Elite Chronicles uh, website submissions set up for readercrowd.com, um, and uh, he's also he's now recorded an audio version of some of the text, uh, which he's posted up on the Fan Creations area, which uh, he'd like people to have a listen to. Worth a, uh, worth a, a diversion and um, very entertaining, so that's worth uh, worth checking out. 
So iTunes, thanks very much to Sid Erno for his review. Yeah, and uh, new review coming f- reviews coming for Escape Velocity, uh, Commander Commander, uh, and Wise Old Man as well. I'm not sure if we previously shouted him out, um, but it's definitely on there. Thank you very much. Hope everyone's enjoying the second series, uh, of which the second episode I am working on. Also, I think something we can add as well to our shout-outs here, great um, to, you know, I obviously wasn't there, but John, uh, John was and Foz was. Great to see Dave Hughes back. I think uh, everyone's missed him, and uh, obviously he's got his Elite Encounters project to uh, continue on with, and uh, hopefully with uh, the support of uh, the rest of the community and everybody else, um, that'll get finished on the deadline, and um, it'll join all the rest of the excellent pieces of Elite Fiction that are being produced. Great stuff. So that just leaves me to say that you can contact the show by emailing info at laveradio.com. You can tweet us at laveradio. You can search for us on Facebook. Or if you'd like to call us on Skype and leave us a message, you can add us using lave.radio. Okay, so all that's left is to go and start some repairs on the Orange Sidewinder because it really needs it after that uh, uh, radioactive dump in Slough. And um, I will say thank you very much, Alan Stroud. And thank you very much, Chris Jarvis. And we will see you next week. Two seconds, I'll be right back.